Indeed, I want to encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We continue on in our series in the book of Colossians chapter 2. Again, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness. When you think of giving to Putting Down Roots, you can do that through your normal means of giving, offerings on Sunday, or you can do that online as well. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Carissa in the office and she'll be able to help you with that. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 16 and we'll be looking through verses, or verse 23 this morning as we pick up where we left off last time. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. This is the Apostle Paul writing by being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He writes, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through it joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes and help us to behold wonderful things in your word? Holy Spirit, would you teach us and instruct us and change us by it? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we know, and it's somewhat taken for granted, we all know that you need clean water in order to survive as a human. Right? We're thankful that we have access in most of our uh, region and United States and other places in the world where we have access to clean drinking water and yet some 3.5 million people each year die from contaminated water. That's literally every 10 seconds someone is dying because they drank polluted water. Most of these are children. And I think when I thought about just the, the difference of drinking water and water having contaminants in it versus water that doesn't, how life-changing that is. I thought, what a picture of that that could be for, for seeing what's going on in the Colossian church. The warning it shows us and pictures for us. It's a sobering picture of indeed what had happened in Colossae. They had been given the gospel the clarity, the the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet now these gospel waters were being polluted by contaminants causing the lives of many of the people in Colossae to be in great danger. As a reminder, the problem there at the church at Colossae was that certain false teachings had been circulating, all of which were denying the sufficiency of Jesus. 
that you needed something more than Jesus in order to reach some kind of spiritual fulfillment, to be right with Jesus, or to have some kind of, of, of experience with him. You, Jesus was good, but you needed more than just him, is what they were teaching. We know that that's not only a danger in that day and time in this particular church, but that's been a danger that's existed ever since the church was established. The danger of false teaching. You know, I think it's, when we think about the dangers that we face in, in the world, there, there are dangers on every side of, Christi- of the believer that seek to threaten us. I mean, we have all kinds of dangers, don't we? You think about the, the temptations that we have, the, the seductions that we have, the materialism that's rampant. The, on and on we can go, but listen, there is no danger more deadly than that of false doctrine. One of the deadly toxins that we often f- find in the church. We're, we're not talking about just teachings outside of the church, other religions or cults. Those are obvious toxins, but toxins that find their way oftentimes in the church that contaminate the gospel, that pollute the purity and clarity of the gospel, often trickle into the church. And one of those deadly toxins that often find its way is that of legalism. Legalism involves erecting specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture and making adherence to them the means by which a person is qualified for full participation in the church. Let me say that again. Legalism involves the constructing of specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture and making a commitment to them the means by which a person is qualified for full participation in the church. Spurgeon, great preacher of England in the 1800s, once preached. He said, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalists. Friends, I think that is certainly a great reminder to us all that all of us have the tendency towards adding to the gospel in order to be seen as a Christian or to continue on as a Christian. And I think what we find here in this text is a great warning to us to not add to the gospel, to be made right before a holy God, and to continue to live out a life of sanctification. Paul is passionately cautioning the church against this foolish embrace of these toxic pollutants that would corrupt the clear purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's made that abundantly clear thus far in this letter as we've seen by saying all the way through so far that Jesus is the only one sufficient to save and complete you. You need nothing more than Christ to be right before God and to grow in his grace. And any attempt to maintain that you can merit God's favor outside of the work of Jesus is to say that Christ is not sufficient. And that's exactly what Paul's getting to here. Brothers and sisters, the reason that 
legalism is so dangerous is because it suggests somehow that man is smarter than God. And so legalism hurts the sheep. It veils the gospel. It marginalizes Christ. And ultimately, it exalts man. So our call today from this passage is that it's pretty clear. Paul says twice, let no one pass judgment on you and let no one disqualify you. Let no one, let no one convince you that you need something more than Jesus to be right with him. And all of us would say, absolutely. But yet how we live sometimes proves something different, doesn't it? So let no one add to Christ rules and regulations that deny his sufficiency and bind your conscience. Paul highlights here several things about what I call man-made religion or man-made spirituality that we need to see and understand if we're going to strive to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to look at today are three things, the behaviors of man-made religion, the problem of man-made religion, and the cure of it. And then we'll follow up with a few quick points of application at the end. So we're going to look at the behaviors, the problem, and the cure of man-made religion. Let's begin with the behaviors of man-made religion. As I've said earlier, and as we've seen in this letter so far, the, there was a concerted effort to draw these mostly Gentile Christians, away from Christ. And a big part of that effort included this, this newly required form of spirituality not expressed in the gospel that they had received. The gospel had come to them. They had believed in Jesus. They had been saved by Jesus. They were now being built up in Jesus. We've seen that. They're uh, being established, rooted, and built up in the faith back in verse 6. Many good things had been happening, and now they were being told they needed something more if they were really going to be a Christian. And some of that was drawn from practices of Judaism, even taken from the Old Testament, and, in, and now required in their church. Several behaviors that emerged from these errors. First of all, we see a preoccupation with religious ritual. First behavior of man-made religion is a preoccupation with religious ritual. We see that in verses 16 and 17. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what Paul's referring to here is, is really the, the Jewish uh, calendar, the new moon, the festivals, the Sabbath, and certain Old Testament customs that were food laws all the way back in the Old Testament. So really, he's, he's highlighting Jewish diet and Jewish days, which we know, if you go back to the Old Testament, really governed the entirety of the Jewish, believe, or of the Jewish uh, people's lives when they were given over to observe these customs. And part of the false teacher's tactics now were to convince the Christians in Colossae, after Jesus had come and died for their sin, fulfilled the law, that they needed still to keep to a certain diet and observe certain Jewish religious days if they were really going to be spiritual. So we see the message coming to the Colossians was that in addition to what Jesus had done, they still needed to add these regulations if they were going to know the fullness of life and be truly holy before God. 
His concern, we need to understand that Paul's concern was not so much with the existence of Old Testament food customs or holy days, but with the purpose they actually served. He says it clearly here in verse 17. We're going to pick back up on this in a minute. As he references the diet and the days of religious observance, he says you need to understand these were a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He wasn't against Old Testament customs. He just understood their rightful place in the scheme of redemption. They were a shadow pointing to a Savior. And now that the Savior had come and fulfilled all righteousness, they were no longer needed or binding regulations upon the believer. So there was a preoccupation with religious ritual. Boy, we could go on and on about that. There's not necessarily an an exact equivalent to some of the things I think we see in the church today, although you could certainly maybe see examples of of Christian churches trying to go back to to, to Old Testament customs and import them into modern-day practice. But there's there's a plethora of religious experience or religious rituals that Christians are tempted to be preoccupied with today as some means to gain favor with God. Paul is warning against that. The second behavior is what we could call a fascination with mystical experiences. Verses 18 and 19, you see that there. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, or going in on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So really he highlights three things here. First of all, asceticism which was an approach to radical self-denial, denying oneself a certain pleasures in order to find spiritual fullness. So it was a radical approach of kind of a self-discipline kind of thing where you just inflicted harm on your body to be more holy. Apparently that was being something espoused in the Colossian church or in that region. Or the worship of angels. This is a little tricky because we're not exactly sure what Paul means here. Were they truly being tempted to worship angels? There, there seems to be some indication of that there, although that wasn't a prominent issue in that day and time. Or was it the fact that they were so preoccupied and fascinated by the topic of angels and speculations about angels that they were, in effect, worshiping them because that's all they talked about instead of God? And then, apparently, there were some who were going on and on about the importance of being caught up in visions. You're not really holy because you've not had a vision like I had. So you, you can see the concern that's coming from Paul. That there's this emphasis, there's this fascination with these mystical experiences of being caught up in these experiences where if you didn't have an experience, you were somehow less than a Christian. And again, while these aren't necessarily the same temptations we have, We all have known the person and maybe have even been the person that emphasized certain experience as a test for holiness. And if you have not experienced Jesus in this same exact way, then somehow you must either not be a Christian or you're really in sin. So you have this fascination with mystical experiences. And then a third behavior is an embrace of legalistic practices. You see that there in verse 20 and following. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He uses these in quotes as if it was a common phrase or some common thing that was being espoused in this day of not touching and not doing certain things as a test of whether or not one was truly holy. Notice, really, Paul, I think his tone changes a bit here. He gets a little bit more animated here. He's like, what's wrong with you? Why in the world would you go back to some kind of detailed regulation and religious custom to somehow find your fullness in Jesus? You have everything you need in Jesus. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him bodily. You have everything. He's done everything you needed to be made right with God, and yet you're now going back to try to somehow prove your way to God. Why would you do this? You can see that there in the text. You've died with Christ. If you're united with Jesus, if you've had this glorious union and, and, and salvation now complete in Christ, why in the world are you trying to add to him? You see the embrace of these legalistic practices. And brothers and sisters, we see this all the time. In our day, and Paul knew that the wrong focus on rules and experience to make one holy actually took them further away from Christ. It certainly didn't push people towards him. And the more that you're caught up in rules and regulations and mystical experiences and religious ritual, the more you're caught up with these external things and then begin to require these external things as a means of righteousness, the more you're caught up with them, the less you're caught up with Christ. It's a very selfish way to live. It's a self-righteous approach to a holy God. And Paul wanted nothing to do with it. He was, he was concerned, if not angry, that the, the false teachers were, of the day were, were convincing with plausible arguments. That this is how you live as a Christian. This is how you're really holy. These man-made rules that had been elevated above Scripture to define what true holiness looks like. Friends, we see that all the time today in what, under the name of Christianity, the, uh, amazing rules that come out of certain churches of having to dress in a particular way or if you don't use a particular version of the Bible or if you don't abstain from this or abstain from that, that you're not really a Christian. I remember my wife, she used to work years ago at a bank and she, I think, had a co-worker Knew she was a pastor's wife, not that that makes you holy or a Christian. It should, but it doesn't. This, this co-worker of hers belonged to another denomination, and this particular denomination believed that if you were not part of that denomination, you were going to hell. And she basically told my wife that. Because she didn't belong to the true church. Again, depending on external things and not on Christ. You have to be very, very careful that we do not embrace legalistic practices for the sake of being right with God. Now, there's the behaviors. There's this kind of the explanation of what Paul's getting at here. Let's talk about why it's problematic. The problem of man-made religion. I think one of the things you see common, a common thread throughout all of these warnings, is that they redirect the focus away from the gospel being centered on Jesus 
to now emphasizing a gospel being centered on man and man's righteousness. So, first problem is this, is that it diverts. Man-made religion diverts us away from the gospel. Listen, Paul, of all people, was not anti-law. He was a Jew, and he had great respect for Old Testament laws and practices. The beef Paul had was not that these believers had bought into the teaching that the law was uh, that the law existed, but that the law was now still binding that Christ had come. That was his concern, not that he had a beef with the law. He just said, you're, you're missing the point of it. The point of it is not obey the law and therefore be right with God. The point is, you can't obey the law. You need Christ, therefore that's how you're right with God. And now you're still trying to, to go back and subvert Jesus and, and kind of push him aside as if you're still going to kind of make yourself right with God through these Old Testament customs and religious regulations. Diverts us away from the gospel. He, he didn't have a problem with the law. He just he wanted to see it in its rightful place. We see that in Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do you think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. You need to understand that when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament does not say, forget the Old Testament, it's no longer important. Just ignore everything. It was kind of a temporary thing that kind of just kept people busy till Jesus came. No, it, it, it's so much more than that. It finds its fullness now in Christ. Paul said, these are a shadow of the things to come. The substance, though, belongs to Christ. It's preoccupation with religious ritual. Even those rituals prescribed in the Old Testament miss their ultimate point when they're disconnected to their purpose, from their purpose. I want you to imagine, it's a big gift Sunday, so let's just imagine you had the opportunity to build your dream home. You found the perfect set of blueprints, drawings that perfectly had everything laid out just as you wanted it. You eventually contract with the builder and you start building this dream home of yours. And so some seven, eight, nine months later, the, the, the home is finished. Just like it was drawn, just like you had imagined, built exactly to scale, even included some upgrades. You didn't even request, but they were provided for you just as a kindness. Now imagine the builder coming to you with your house keys saying, here's your home, you can move in. For you to only say, you know, I think I'm going to stay where I am and I'm just going to keep these blueprints because I've, I've kind of grown fond to them. I'm going to frame them, I'm going to put them on the wall and I'm just going to stay in this place. I know the dream home is built, I know I could move into it, but I, I prefer the blueprints. You would be looked at as a an idiot, a fool. I mean, you'd be out of your mind to, to think something like that, right? You, you'd think, why in somebody, why would they do that? They're, they're fascinated with the drawings, the blueprints. Certainly that's a ridiculous example, but that's exactly what the Colossians were being tempted to do with the gospel. They were being tempted to cling to the shadow and not the reality. Because the problem wasn't the law or Old Testament practices. The problem was using them for the wrong purposes. They were shadows, not the reality. And Paul is saying, we have the reality in Christ. Now, you may not be tempted 
You may not be tempted to divert back to Old Testament regulations, but friends, you are tempted in some way to regulate your life in some manner outside of Scripture. It's a reality. It's a temptation we all face. And as much as we might think as religious rituals as the height of spirituality, I think oftentimes they actually produce in us something opposite. Even fleshly ungodly thoughts. Why? Because in them we are seeking to find acceptance with God by way of personal effort instead of finding acceptance with God through Christ. We talk about that when we're talking about sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel so that people can be saved. Listen, and we say that we preach this pretty much every week here, don't we? We say if you're trusting in something else besides Jesus, quit. Only look to Christ. Only trust in Christ. And so we're, we, we're, we're, we're saying that up front, right? We're saying if you're trusting in good works, in behavior, in, in a clear conscience, or, or in the way that you live out your life in order to be right with God, you're not going to be right with God because you're not good enough to be right with God on your own. You need to trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation. That's the gospel. But even as Christians, we're so tempted to kind of keep ourselves right with God through certain standards, aren't we? Well, okay, I'm right with God because of Christ, but I've got to kind of keep myself right with God based upon these behaviors, based upon this way of living. And often that way of living is, is, de- is defined by standards that aren't necessarily biblical standards. So it's a danger both in our salvation and it's a danger in our sanctification. Listen, let it be known and heard clearly today the only way you will ever be right before a holy God is by being united to Jesus Christ in faith and that alone. You can do nothing to make God love you more than he does in Christ. So it's, it diverts. These man-made religions divert us from the gospel. Paul's like, don't be diverted. Don't be led astray. Don't be taken captive. Number two, it's self-serving. Another problem of these man-made religions, they're self-serving. In the case of these mystical experiences, Paul says that such practices have distracted you to the point where you no longer hold fast, hold fast to the head. That is Christ. You see that there in the text, don't you? It says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. Speaking of Christ there, who has authority over the church, and we've already seen why he has that authority, because of who he is. Fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He has absolute, complete authority. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, you're putting more hope and more focus in your mystical experiences than you are trusting in the head of the church. Experience over truth. Not a temptation in the church today? You know it is. You sure know it is. The tendency of false gospels and man-made religion will either remake Jesus into something else or it will ignore him altogether. Notice how Paul describes such experience seekers. He said they're puffed up. He said they're puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. See that there in the text in verse 18. 
I know I wouldn't disqualify you insisting on these things. These people are puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and they're not holding fast to the head. You see, the, the problem there is that they were more concerned about themselves than they were Christ. I think an important question for us all to ask at times when we're tempted towards having an experience is this. Who is it that's being exalted? See, this, this is a problem I think that we all struggle with to some degree because we all have some expectation of some kind of religious experience, whether it's in a corporate worship gathering like this or just in general. Who is it that's being focused on? Who is it that's being exalted at that moment? You see, when a person insists on these kinds of mystical experiences, while such a person may boast of how close they are with God and may seem to come across as deeply spiritual, Paul actually says they're not full of God. They're full of themselves. And I think that's a danger even in your worship preferences. Be careful with that. You're insisting on a certain style of worship. Are you more caught up with concern about who God is or with your own personal experience? Are you more focused on yourself? Are you more focused on the, the glory and praise and majesty of God? It creeps right into our hearts on Sunday mornings, doesn't it? We can't, can't be right with God if we don't have this exact experience, if we don't sing this kind of song in this exact way. Legalism, self-serving. Brothers and sisters, we need not be a people about ourselves. We must be a people about the glory and praise and majesty of God. Be leery of those who boast about certain experiences and then look down on you because you haven't had that same experience. Self-serving. Number three, it's futile. Paul continues to ridicule the regulations forced upon the Colossian believers, and he gets super clear as to why these legalistic teachings are problematic. He goes on in verse 20, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things all that perish as they are used according to what? Human precepts and teachings. So these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Such teachings are man-made. They're not God-inspired. Self-made religion has the appearance of wisdom. It looks wise. It looks right. But at the end of the day, has absolutely no power over you. Man-made religion, religious regulations, religious ritual, legalistic tendencies, mystical experiences, none of these can make you holy. Only Christ, only the gospel that comes in you and transforms you and now by the Holy Spirit who indwells you, is that, that is the means by which you become holy. See, the issue with legalism is that it looks spiritual, yet at the end, it's absolutely worthless. Brothers and sisters, a man-made religion 
can never deliver what it promises. Ever. It's futile. So those are the problems we see in the text. But what about the cure? How do, how do you get cured of this disease? It's, it's not complex. How do you cure this? Paul's been quite clear about the answer to this problem all along, and we really have nothing new to add here. To the religious rule keepers who think the essence of godliness is bound up in the keeping of Old Testament ceremonies and forsaking certain food and drink, he simply says, these were a shadow of the substance, and the substance is Christ. To those who sought holiness by mystical experience, he says to them, your problem is that you're not holding fast to the head, Christ. And so Paul's conclusion now is to what genuinely leads to true godliness is simple. It's not doing external things, nor is it having some emotional experience. The mark of true godliness is found in our union with Jesus Christ. Every time he criticizes a practice, he says the problem with it, it's taken its sight off of Jesus. It's detached itself from the from the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's now adding something to him that has no power to change you and to make you more like him. And so the cure is simple. The cure is to, to, to go back to the purity of the gospel, the, the reality of Jesus and him crucified and risen. The way that you're transformed and the way that you're made right with God and the way that you're further conformed to be like Christ is to cling to Christ. To embrace him in faith and to put your hope in him and to look to him. We're not saying that there aren't commandments that we aren't to follow. That's clear in the Bible. We have those. In fact, next week, we're going to, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about putting to death certain things and putting on other things. So there is a command to us that we're to do certain things, but, but not to be seen as right or holy before God. It's the actual fruit of being right and holy before God. We live this way because of who we are. We don't live this way to become who we are. It's a big difference. Big difference. Once our hearts have been united to Christ by faith, we will begin to see this inward transformation take place that can be seen over time. Now, what are some just, let me just give some few parting words here as far as application goes. What does this teach us today in addition to what we've already seen? Number one, simply do not add to the gospel. Don't add to the gospel. And I know I say that and you're like, obviously, right? Christians do this all the time. If we're not tempted to add to the gospel for salvation, we are tempted to add to it in order to keep our salvation. The Bible doesn't, I should say the Bible does give us a clear ethic for living the Christian life, but it gives us a clear ethic for living the Christian life that flows from a transformed heart. You don't live in this way to get a transformed heart. You look to Christ and you get a transformed heart and therefore you live this way. That's how the gospel works. Don't add to it. 
Don't say you need to put your hope in Jesus and live this way. You need to put your hope in Jesus and eat this way or drink this way. Don't put your, put your hope in Jesus and, and do this and do, do not do that. It's, not, it's put your hope in Jesus, period. And then he will begin to transform you and your life will begin to be changed by grace and you'll be living out of the overflow of grace and there will be things you'll begin to say no thank you to. Not doing that. Not to, how, not to somehow make yourself right with God because you are right with God. Your motives and your desires and your affections and your will begins to change and be transformed by the beauty of grace. You'll find it easier over time, empowered by the Spirit, to move in different directions that you didn't before. So don't add to the gospel. Don't tell people that if they're going to be saved, they need to do something else besides trusting in Christ. And don't tell people, Christians, don't tell other Christians that if they're going to truly be holy, they need to do this, 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 and this in addition to continuing to trust in Jesus. Listen, because of what Jesus has done for us, he, he came, he lived a life of perfection, he died upon the cross for our sin. He, he paid the debt. He said, it is finished. He did that in full. You have no debt to pay. Praise God for that because of Christ. And not only did he do that, he lived a life of righteousness, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law so that those who trust in him have this righteousness now credited to them. You can do nothing, Christians. You can do nothing to make God look at you differently than he already does. In God's eyes, you are perfectly holy. Righteous, declared that for eternity. And because of that, truth, that is the very thing that spurs us on to live lives of holiness, to live lives of righteousness, to put off the works of the flesh and to put on the things that please God. Do not add to the gospel. Number two, pursue gospel-generated experiences. Listen, the last thing I want you to hear this morning is pastor said we shouldn't have an experience. I didn't say that, nor did Paul. I don't want us to be afraid of having a genuine experience with God. So Paul is not at all against experiences. Indeed, my prayer is that we all would have regular, intense experiences of sweet fellowship with Christ, but that we find them through the means that God has provided. We don't just generate an experience we find them through the means of grace listen I guarantee you I, I, I can't guarantee you a lot of things but I can guarantee you this you will find no sweeter and no deeper more intense experience with Christ than to go deeper with him in the gospel if you try to somehow manufacture an experience it won't last but the more you're caught up with Christ and what he's done for you and how he's lived for you and he's died for you and he's risen for you and how all of this continues to work, the more you go deep into the gospel, the more of an experience of it you will have. So yes, pursue gospel-driven experiences. Make sure that those experiences that you have, those intense moments of sweetness and fellowship with Christ are compelled by the gospel, not by some prescribed means of holiness outside of the gospel. 
And then number three, value the gift of Christian community. And you say, well, what in the world are you talking? Where did that come from? This isn't a sermon on Christian community. This is a sermon against legalism. Listen, legalism, one of the problems with it is it tends to isolate Christians. When we're enamored with rule-keeping and personal experiences, we become so self-centered that we lose sight of the true means God has established for Christian growth. Look back at verse 19. I didn't just make this up. He said, some of you, don't, don't let them disqualify you insisting on these experiences and not holding fast to the head. Then notice what he says. From whom the whole body, nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. The growth that comes from God is a growth not generated by rule-keeping and mystical experiences. The growth that comes from God is found by being rooted and knit together in Christian community that holds fast together to its head. That's what he's saying here. And so one of the true marks of Christian maturity is not what you abstain from eating and drinking or how, how, how many rules you can keep. The, one of the true marks of Christian maturity is whether or not you're living your life out in the context of a Christian community in fellowship with other believers. And so if you refuse to gather with the church, you're in essence engaged in legalism to some degree. And it is deadly, dangerous for your soul. David Strain, a Presbyterian pastor in Mississippi, said believers who have Jesus at the center do not pull back. They do not run away. They are not retreating. They do not content themselves with their favorite internet preacher. They will not forsake the assembling of themselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but they encourage one another. And all the more as they see the day approaching. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that you fight against legalistic tendencies is to be in sweet communion and fellowship with other Christians. They will help you, and you will help them live out the calling that we all have been given. Friends, legalism is a dangerous road that has led many to a Christless eternity. Don't be taken captive by its empty promises. Don't let legalism take you captive from the true life that's found in the gospel. Legalism is built on man's word. The gospel is built on God's word. Legalism has the appearance of wisdom. The gospel is the wisdom of God. Legalism is man-made. The gospel is God's gift. Legalism is powerless, absolutely powerless to make you holy. But the gospel does make you holy. It present you blameless before God. So brothers and sisters, there's no need to drink from the polluted waters that are all around us when we have direct access to the pure fountain of life. Drink from that fountain and that fountain alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this exhortation and this reminder, this warning. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your grace for being reminded of the ploys, the tactics that are against us, Lord, that often creep in even to our churches. God, would you help us to see what true holiness looks like? Would you help us to cling firmly to the means by which you make us holy and present us blameless before you? And that comes through Christ. 
God, would you keep our hearts knit firmly in faith to him? And as we do so, Lord, we will see the fruit of righteousness continue to be displayed and demonstrated in our lives. And Lord, would you help us to hold fast to that glorious reality that we have in Jesus? Father, I'm sure that all of us, to some degree, when we consider these things, all of us have things in our life where we're tempted to define our own righteousness by something other than Jesus. Would you show us that, Lord? Would you convict us of where we're, where maybe we're putting our trust and our hope in other things besides Christ? Father, would you help us to find the joy of the freedom that we have in Jesus? That through faith in him, through our union with him, we have everything we need to be right and complete before you. God, would you help us not to trust in anything else but Christ? Lord, it may even be true that there are some here today, Lord, that haven't put their hope in Christ. My prayer is now that you would open their eyes to that truth of their need of him and that you would give them a yearning to come running to him in faith. They would forsake their sin and that they would put their hope in Christ this day for your glory, and for their good. God, we thank you for your word and for how you teach us and for how you shape us by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.